had without my daughter, which we uh, moved into college last weekend, and then we went to, you know, a, a church that she's been going to, which was which was an experience, and I'm glad she's going to that church. It, it's going to do her a lot of good to go there. Um, so we had it. We had a good time with her. Um, Several of us have have dropped off our daughters and sons at college. In fact, I must be getting a lot older because most of my friends are dropping off their kids at college for the very first time. Um, In in this church, you know, I've seen kids dropped off that I've known since they were, you know, 11 years younger than they are right now, right? So that's 9 years old and 10 years old and 11 years old and seeing them grow up. So it's kind of an odd thing. I have done a lot of thinking about this college thing. Over, over the week, and I've come to realize that college and nursing homes have a lot of parallel things. You drop them off at college, you drop them off at the nursing home. You pay an exorbitant amount of money for them to stay there, you pay an exorbitant amount of money for them to stay there. There is food provided, Right? There is activities in both arenas, and both arenas have classes. So I think that really the whole college system is just to get you prepared for the end of your life. It has nothing to do with getting traded or anything, just so you will know how to live with someone else in your room. Yeah. So there you go. That has nothing to do with this message at all, okay? How many of you have the bulletin? You, you have the bulletin with you right now? I want you to take that bulletin, and I want you to take a pen, and um, I actually um, got this idea from a guy named John Maxwell, but I rearranged the questions for it. I, I want to do this this morning to kind of get this sermon started. Um, so take a cheat sheet of paper, and I want you to get a pen, And I want you to write down the name of the person that you admire the most. I want you to... Now, listen. Let me me say this. The number two person that you admire the most, um, the first one should be Jesus, so that's a given. So then the, the second person that you admire the most in your life. Jesus is a given, so number two... So when you write that down, just kind of shake your head so I know you've written it down. Okay. Now, I want you, right next to their name, I want you to write down what it is about them that makes you admire them. So what is it about them that makes you admire them? So, So write that down. Okay. Now, how many of you, and just raise your hand, wrote down, they look good. You did? Very very good, very good. But sometimes that's all you can count on. Yeah, sometimes that's all you can count on. How many of you wrote down something that has to do with some talents or abilities that they have and you admire that? You admire how they can do things. How many of you have something, several of you in here? Good. How many of you... Um, right beside that name, that thing is like an integrity. Something about their integrity. Right over here, some integrity people. Yeah, some integrity. Um, How many of you have a word beside there that has to do with their attitude? Just raise your hand. Attitude. Very good. Now this is what I want you to do. 
If someone in this room wrote down your name, I want you to write down the quality that you would want them to see in you. So if someone in this room wrote down your name, I want you to write down the quality that you hope that people are seeing in you. Write that, write that down. So does everybody got it? I would submit to you this morning that whatever quality that is that you wrote down that you would hope that people would see in you is the number one value that you have that you want people to see. You want people to remember you by that value. And it is something that you would want to protect to the best of your ability. Wouldn't you agree? You would want to protect that thing that you want other people to see in you that you know is there. You would want to protect it and make sure that they see that thing. So with that in mind, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. Now, this sermon was not planned a year in advance. I just need to let you know that. All of my sermons are that you hear normally, but every now and then, I'm in my devotions, and there's some type of scripture that hits my heart. So about six weeks ago, I thought, I need to preach on Genesis 20. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is, this is a very confusing sort of story. Maybe not up front when you read through it, but then when you start asking questions about it, it becomes very, a little bit difficult, okay? So, so here's Genesis chapter 20. I'm going to read all the way through it, and then we're going to start making comments. And I um, hold out the ability to change that. If I stop in a verse, I, I'm just going to stop there. Okay, here we go. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Najib and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he, and he sojourned in Gerir. Yeah. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerir, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, no. You shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom of great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What? Did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me 
because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given you a brother, uh, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. But before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. That is quite a story, isn't it? That is quite a story. And there's a lot of questions that come with that particular story in the Bible. A ton of questions. A ton of questions. So let's, let's get into a few Verse 2, and Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerir, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. I want to pause here a moment and tell you, God takes adultery very seriously. Very seriously. Extremely seriously. In fact, I would, I would tell you this. According to this passage, Abimelech didn't even touch Sarah at all. There is a reason for that, and I'm going to get into that in a moment. Okay, God prevented it, but I'll get into that in a moment. But Sarah was just in his house. She was just there. There is an emotional attachment maybe from Abimelech to her, but she was just there. And just that alone was enough for God to judge Abimelech's house. God takes adultery very seriously. And it seems in Scripture that it's not just the physical act that he takes seriously. It's an emotional connection as well that he takes very seriously when it comes to adultery. So I don't know who that's for today, but this is what I do know. If you're playing around with the opposite sex and that person is not your wife, it's time to stop it. It's time to stop it even if you haven't touched her, kissed her, and I'm speaking as a man, touched her, kissed her, hugged her, whatever. If you're a woman, if you haven't kissed him, touched him, hugged him at all, but you have an emotional connection that is stronger than you have for your husband, or for a man, if it's stronger than the connection you have for your wife, it is time to stop it now. God takes it very, very seriously. He has judged Abimelech, and he hasn't even touched Sarah's wife. So there's no doubt how God feels about adultery. So verses 4 through 5, it says, Now Abimelech had not approached her. That means he hadn't touched her at all. So he said, Lord... Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and in the innocent of my hands, I have done this. 
So let me give you a little background that you might not see here. And this is, this is something that I'm just trying to figure out how we got to this point in this story. Abimelech's household is sick. That's a fact. Abimelech himself might even be sick. But definitely his household. His wives are sick. The wives of his servants are sick. They cannot bear children. There's a lot going on here that Abimelech himself has started to pray to God to see what in the world is wrong. And from that prayer, God has visited Abimelech in a dream to give him an answer as to why the sickness is occurring. That's why he's saying this stuff. So two things. First of all, if you sin and do not know that you have sinned, it is still a sin that has to be judged by holy God. That is a scary thought, isn't it? It's a scary thought to think in my arena, and I'm sure in yours, that I can go through the week and somehow sin in a way that I don't know I'm sinning and not realizing it. That I can go through life and I can go down a path and in the innocence of my heart and in, in the integrity of my heart, I can do something wrong and not even know I've done something wrong. So what do you do then? I mean, how do I know what I don't know when I don't know it? How do I know that? in order to know it so that I can ask forgiveness for it. Well, here's what I do. Every day, I pray, Lord, I'm a sorry individual. I realize that. My heart is sinful. I'm trying to follow you as best as possible. If I've done anything today that is against you and your will and your rules, I'm asking forgiveness for it now. And if it's something that I need to change, please bring that to light so that I will know that. That's what you do. You pray to God for the thing that you don't know you're praying for, okay? So even when we sin and don't know it, we are sin. We're still, it's still sin that has to be judged. You just need to every now and then just say, Lord, if I've done something wrong and I don't realize it, please forgive me for it. I need that forgiveness. Second, not every sickness is a judgment of God. Not every sickness is a judgment of God. Sometimes... Sometimes sickness is putting your life so that you will not sin again. And that is precisely what is happening here. Abimelech has brought Sarah into his house. He has feelings for her emotionally. Okay? He has not touched her because there is sickness in his house and he's not able to. Here in a few moments, God is going to say, I have kept you from touching Sarah, another man's wife. Well, how did he do that? He made the man sick. I love my wife, but when she is praying to the porcelain throne of our house, she is just not that attractive. Is everybody tracking? God caused this sickness to come into his life so that he would not sin, so that he would not touch Sarah. Have you ever thought that maybe the reason that you got sick was to prevent you from doing something that was very wrong? Have you ever thought that maybe that, that, that thing that's happening inside of you was something to prevent you from doing something that you were not supposed to do? And if you didn't have that sickness, you would have gone into that sin? 
I'll tell you this, I'm thankful anytime God prevents me from sinning. Come on, church. I'm thankful for any time he does that. And if it's sickness that has to happen in order for me not to do something wrong, I'm for it. Because I want to live in such a way that I show the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and bring other people to him as a result. And I do not need to be involved in things that will hinder that from occurring. Um, I have had many times in my life that I've looked back and I thought, oh, that's the reason I was sick. That's the reason that that car wreck happened. That's the reason that that happened, so that I would not be in this place where I would have committed a sin that I shouldn't have been a part of. Very, very thankful for that. So all sickness is not because of sin, but some sickness is to prevent you from doing something wrong. So I want to throw that out. So a few things about that statement. Verse 6 of chapter 20 says this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. God kept him from sinning against Sarah, Sarah for several reasons. One was Sarah has a promise on her life from God. Abraham has been told that he's going to be a great nation and that Sarah is going to have a son. And that son is going to be his. And so there is a promise that God is keeping when he interacts with Abimelech. Because let's be honest, who in this story are we really kind of upset with? Abraham. And just because we live in an equal day, I'm also upset with Sarah. She went right along with it, and it's still a lie. Oh, no, Philip, it's not a lie, because the Scripture says that, well, they're really brother and sister. Um, you need to go back to West Virginia. First, foremost, just go back, just move away, go somewhere else. But second, it is a lie. They were doing it to cover something up. They were doing that lie to cover up that they were married. They were doing it because Abraham feared the people. Make no mistake. It was a lie for protection. Isn't that the number one reason why you and I lie anyway is for protection? Have you ever had your kid come up and, and they did something wrong and you caught them on it and they were like, I didn't do that. but I saw you do it. No, I didn't do it. I don't know what you saw, but I wasn't doing that. I saw you do it. No, I didn't do it. In the innocence of my heart and the integrity of my soul, Dad, I did not do that. Right? Have you ever had your kid do something similar? Um, Quinn, Quinn, when he was little, um, would uh, go into the cookie jar and get cookies. He wasn't supposed to, and we told him many times not to do that. So this is like when he's four or five years old. So he'd go into that cookie jar, and he'd take a cookie, and he'd be eating that cookie, right, that chocolate chip cookie, right? His mother would walk into the room, and she would say, Quinn, you're not supposed to be eating that cookie. You're in big trouble, because that's, that's the terminology we use. And Quinn would, without missing a beat, would take that cookie out of his mouth and say, Mom, I know, but I'm eating this cookie for you. <laughs> Innocent of a heart, you know, just, just without missing a beat. 
Listen, there's a promise attached to Sarah. And that is why he's dealing with Abimelech. A promise. I don't care if you don't take anything else home from this sermon, but I want you to take this home. God always keeps his promises. Always does. Even when you're a lying scoundrel, he's going to keep the promise that he made to you. You may be sitting here this morning and say, well, God's never told me any promise that he has made me. I'm going to give you one. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This means the moment that you receive Jesus as your Savior, it doesn't matter if you sin before you die. You are going to heaven to live with him. He has made that promise, and he's going to come clean on that promise, and it does not matter what you have done. You are going to heaven because you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is awesome. That is awesome. So here in this passage, here's a lying chosen man and woman of God, but God is still going to keep his promise. Because to be honest, it was only just one boy. I mean, let's be honest. And there's other people in the world, right? God could have started all over with someone else. He could have said, forget that. He's done this twice. This is actually the second time Abraham's done this. He's done this twice. I'm done with him. We're going to somebody else a little more perfect. But he didn't do that. He stuck with his promise with Abraham and Sarah. And that is the reason that we know who Jesus Christ is. I don't have time to unpack that. But that is why we know who Jesus Christ is and we didn't miss him. It is amazing that he has done that. You can take it to the bank that God is going to keep his promise. If you've done anything wrong, you are still going to go to heaven. He has made that promise to you word. And I don't need any other promise than that one. Don't need any other promise than that one. So, he didn't write him off. So second, I want you to notice, and you probably already thought this, and I've already alluded to it, Abimelech has more integrity in this situation than Abraham does. Abimelech has more integrity than Abraham does in this situation. But, Listen to me closely. That does not mean that Abimelech is superior. We need to soak in that a minute. Abimelech is the guy that has more integrity than Abraham in this story, but that does not mean that Abimelech is superior to Abraham. This is a tough truth that is in this story. I want you to notice a couple of things, okay? God, in this interchange, calls Abraham a prophet. Let me read verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. So, I've, I've tried to wrap my mind around all this. All this. Here, here's Abimelech. Here is his household that is sick. Here is his household that is being punished for a lie that Abraham have, has promoted and Sarah has promoted. It, 
his household and servants are in so much distress and so much pain because of this that Abimelech is seeking God to see what in the world he needs to do to get rid of the sickness. He's praying for healing for the sickness. And God is telling Abimelech, I want you to wrap your mind around this. God is telling Abimelech to go over here to Abraham because Abraham is a prophet. And it's at this moment, if it was me, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No. Come on, be, be serious. There's no way. This guy has lied to me. He has called my family harm. Are you tracking with me? He's called, and you want me to go over to him because he's a prophet? Not only that, this verse says, so that Abraham, the liar, the liar prophet, the guy that calls my family's pain, you want him to pray for me that I, I might be forgiven? Did you not remember the first part of our conversation, Lord, where innocent of my heart and integrity of my heart, and then, Lord, you said, um, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, you were innocent, and you did have integrity, but... Um, that's why I prevented you from doing anything more. And I've got to go over to the guy that started all this, that sinned in the first place, and I've got to not only give him his wife back, but I've also got to be nice to him, and I've also got to ask him to pray for me that my sins might be forgiven. Wow. What is this about? I will tell you what this is about. This is about humility. Right? This is about, this is about forgiveness. This is about not striking back. Is everybody tracking with me? This is about loving your enemies. This is about treating people better than they have treated you. That's what this is about. Is, is everybody tracking with me? Nobody is saying that Abraham didn't do wrong. But God is saying this is what you have to do to make it right. And this is where I sit back and I say, I don't understand everything that is in the Bible. And if I think about it long enough, I'm not sure if I agree with it all. But then right after that statement, I'll tell you this. But I trust the word of God anyway. Because God knows what he's doing. And I've proven time and time again, I don't know what I'm doing. And so what do I do? I do what God has told me to do. And here, he tells him to take Sarah back and he tells them to ask Abraham to pray for him so that he can be forgiven. So what does Abraham do? Because, let me give you, this is what I would do. I would take his wife back. I would set him in front of her in front of him and say, here she is. Will you please pray for me so that I can be forgiven so my family can be, can be healed of the sickness? Isn't that, 
I would do the bare minimum. You would too, right? Let me show you what Abimelech does. In verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. So he tells all his servants. Don't miss this. He is telling all his servants how to feel about Abraham. He is telling all his servants that they had better respect Abraham, though he has done us wrong. Is everybody tracking with me? That is the extra mile. God did not tell him to do that. But he is telling his people to respect Abraham, though Abraham is the one that has done them wrong. And they're so afraid of God that they're going to do it. Check this out. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. So let's just refresh this a minute. All he had to do was return Sarah and ask Abraham to ask forgiveness. Everybody tracking? But he's going the extra mile. So what he is doing is he's taking oxen and he's taking, he's taking animals and he's taking them over to Abraham and he's giving them to him. Not only that, but female servants and male servants, he's giving him a kingly gift. He is going the extra mile for a guy that has done his whole family wrong. I, I can't even, I've, I've, my mind, it's hard for me to wrap, wrap my mind around all that. It really is. It really is. He gave Sarah back to Abraham, and then, <laughs> wow. And then in verse 15, it says, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. God did not tell him to do that. Is everybody starting to get the picture here? Just shake your head if you are. I don't know about you, but if this had been me, it would have been, here's your wife, pray for me. The prayer was done. Get out. I do not want you anywhere close to the borders of my land. I want you to go somewhere, and I want you to live there, and I want you gone. I want you out of my life. But here, Abimelech, the innocence and integrity of his heart, has heard from God, and he's going above and beyond what he was supposed to do. He says, look, just pick, pick where you want to live. This means, ladies and gentlemen, that if Abraham decided to park his tent beside Abimelech's home, It was perfectly fine with him. Go wherever you want to go. And, and he did this. Look at verse 16. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So Abimelech makes sure that the reputation of Sarah, the other liar, he makes sure that her reputation is protected. I want you to raise your hand. 
if you would be able to do that. Yeah. But I'll tell you this morning, that is precisely what God wants us to do for our enemies. He says, if you ever want to know what loving your enemies actually looks like, it's Genesis 20. Is that not challenging to your heart? Come on, is that not challenging? It stopped me in my devotions. Dead, six weeks ago. That thought. Because, you know, I'm good with forgiving and kind of, you know, just doing exactly what the Bible says and not over it, right? I'm good with that. But to actually do above and beyond is, is just an amazing concept. But then... And I know you haven't had time to process this. And you may have. You're probably quicker than I am. But it took me a little while to get here. Okay? But then I start thinking, isn't that exactly what God has done for me? I have sinned against a holy God knowingly. And I have sinned against a holy God not knowing I have sinned. I have done both, and you have to. And God has forgiven me in an over-the-top sort of way. So let's just take heaven out of it a few moments. And let me just tell you that God has not killed me yet. Has anybody else been killed because of their sin in here this morning? I just need to know so that we... Do the spiritual for the physical. Just raise your head real quick. Oh, come on, that's funny. I know it's serious, but that's funny. God has not killed you yet. What is the penalty of death? Say it to me. Oh, penalty of sin? I gave you the answer. Death. Penalty of sin is death, right? You do not deserve to be here this morning. You do not deserve to be in good health. You do not deserve to have the life that you currently have, whether you're in a rocky situation or a good situation. I don't care. You do not deserve the grace of Almighty God, and he's been more gracious to you than you have been to him. This is a picture of what God has done you, done to you through forgiveness. So once you get kind of that simmering on the side, you realize that this isn't really odd at all. It's precisely the way that we're supposed to treat people because that's exactly the way that God has treated us. Isn't it scripture that says, forgive others as God has forgiven you? And how can you forgive someone else when you just do the bare minimum? How can you forgive someone else like God has forgiven you when you show them no grace? when you do not show them mercy, when you do not show them peace, when you do not show them niceness. Is that a word? Is that even a word, niceness? It is now. It is a word. We have college people over here that says it's a word. Do what? I said it, so it's a word. That's right. Hey, if the Harry Potter woman can make up words, I can make them up here. Okay. So, a couple of things, and then we're going to wrap this up. Um, oh, it's just 9 o'clock. That's awesome. 
I have plenty of time. <laughs> Shouldn't have changed the clock. Okay, first of all, I, I have purchased a vehicle. Thank you. I have purchased a vehicle. It has been a pain in the rear to find a car. And I wanted to replace one and get one that was an EOS like I had before because I love that car. And so I, I, a um, friend of mine, Nathan Johnson, took me, we went on a tour of South Carolina looking for them, and then was coming back up through uh, Charlotte, and I found one. It, it, it's a black one, it has gray interior. It, it's really, I like it. I like it a lot. But the lady that was selling it to me, Nathan calls them a girl's car, okay? So, okay, so, so the lady, that's why I'm laughing, so don't, it's not you. So the, so the lady that was selling it said, I'm going to sell it to you through CarGurus. So I don't know if you've ever done this before, but she presses a button, I press a button, and it's a process. You don't really give them money. You don't go to the bank and do all that. I've never done this before, but you just press a button, and then you fill out this form, which is a bill of sale, and then you make it to this stage, and then people call you on the phone that you don't know person from CarGuru, and then a person from AutoPay. Now, AutoPay, you get to that point, and we're like, I don't know, um, two days into it, this is on Thursday, you get to AutoPay, and the guy's telling you to wire money to an account that he's going to send you through an email. Now, I don't know if you grew up the way I grew up. My dad told me never to wire money to anybody right? And so I'm trying to do it on the computer. I have this, I have this feeling of, oh my goodness, I, I just, I just don't know if I should be doing this. This is a, this is a scam. It's probably a scam. It's probably a scam. This is probably a scam, okay? So they, that is, that is where I was landing. Go to the bank because I couldn't do it because the amount of money I needed to send them was less than what you could actually wire from the computer. So I went in, I talked to the lady. The lady wired the money to this account, to this bank that was called Forbes Private Bank in Denver. And the logo has scam written all over it, in my mind, right? And, and the paper and stuff. And so I'm, I'm just, it's just... I know it's just money, and I'm struggling with that, and I'm like, I just don't trust this. I think my money's going to be gone. I'm not going to get the car. So I'm continuing to talk to this lady. I wake up in, in the night not really trusting this whole process, not trusting car gurus, because who in the world would call a company car guru? What is, what is that about? So I get up at 2.30 in the morning, and for an hour and a half, I look up all kinds of things like scams with CarGuru. And I'm looking up all this stuff on Google, and it is just the best place to help a person in my mindset. So my wife comes in, and she, it, the way, I, I don't know if you do this or not, but I, there's a place in our kitchen that you can enter in anywhere, and you can see exactly what I'm doing on the computer. I think if you're a man, a woman, or whatever, that's exactly what you need to do with your computer because things happen. But nonetheless, I'm sitting, and it's nighttime, right? So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm doing all kinds of stuff, and Cole comes in, and she says, I, I see what you're looking at. And I said, yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out if this is a scam or not. She said, Philip, it's, it's not a scam. Just go back to bed. You're good. You're, you're good. It's not a scam. She could have said that 50,000 times. I was at the point where it was a scam, right? So the next day, so I finally get to sleep. Um, 
I was tempted to take some muscle relaxers that I got from the rack, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I resisted the temptation because that wasn't what they were meant for. So, so I finally went to sleep. I woke up the next morning, and I'm trying to study, and I just can't get over this. So I, so I texted two, two friends of mine to say, look, I just need prayer. I just cannot get over this, okay? So now we're into to Friday. I think it's Friday now. Yeah, I don't remember, but it's Friday morning. And I finally get confirmation that my funds have made it into the account, and the lady is going to give me the car that evening. And the weight of all that went completely off my shoulders, right? Went completely off my shoulders. My assumptions about car gurus and their integrity and innocence were totally incorrect, right? Because assumption is the lowest form of knowledge. And assumption can cause you to worry when you don't need to worry. It can cause you to create situations in your mind when you don't need to be creating those situations. Assumption is the lowest form of knowledge. And here's the deal with assumption. Assumption can make you think that what you are thinking is not an assumption. Did you follow that? I want you to check, check this out. Abraham said in verse 11, I did it because I thought. What did he think? That there is no fear of God at all in this place. Why did he lie? Because he thought Abimelech and his gang were just a bunch of pagans that didn't believe in God and wouldn't do the right thing. How many times do we make assumptions about people, but we really think that they're true? How many times do we look at someone and say, man, they're trying to scam me. They're not, they're not going to do me right. They're just, and you fear that. And so you, you go the fear route, and then your assumptions become your knowledge and create environments that shouldn't be created. How many, how many times have we done that? I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, from this passage of scripture, Abraham was wrong. And not only was Abraham wrong, but his fear was misplaced because his fear was a fear of man and not a fear of God. Abimelech's fear, however, was a fear that was appropriately placed because his fear was in God and not man. He didn't fear Abraham. If you want to know what motivated him and like a third reason what motivated him to give all this stuff to Abraham is because he had a healthy fear, respect of almighty God and he wanted to make sure that he treated this person correctly before God. To Abimelech, it had nothing to do with Abraham, but it had everything to do with his relationship with God. I end with this. The way you treat people is a direct reflection of how you treat God. It's a direct reflection of what you view of God. When you fear people, what they might do to you, when you do not go the extra mile to forgive them and move on, when you do not do that, when you do not do that, you're actually saying more about your belief in God than you are about them. Now, that's another thought that stopped me in my tracks. How do I really view God? How do I really view him? And shouldn't my actions 
show my belief in him. Amen? So, that's innocence and integrity. Let's pray.